following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone, as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. Mark chapter 11, we're going to read verses 1 through 11, and then we will go to the Lord in prayer. So if you will please look at verse 1. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Let's pray. Jesus, as we begin to enter this final section of Mark's gospel here, this part that we think of as being your passion week, as we refer to it, I, I ask up front that you will help us to set aside our own presuppositions and preconceptions of what this week is and what's happening in it and what its central focus is so that we can see all of these things fresh, just with new eyes, with a new heart to hear, to understand, and to be changed, uh, to recognize you, Lord, for who you truly are, for who you reveal yourself to be over the course of this week, to recognize that your master plan is now beginning to unfold, and that our salvation, our, our hope, our joy, it's all rooted in these things that you have endeavored to do during your time on earth that we've been able to walk with you and see week by week here. And so again, now as we come to your text, we ask that your spirit open our, our, our hearts and our eyes, our minds to understand. Please speak to us, be with us, and help us to be like you through this time. In Jesus' name, amen. I have a lot of good memories of Jonathan and of our time together, but of all of them, my favorite memory, it's not really of Jonathan, but it's more with him, was the year that he and I and two other guys spent competing on something called Bible Bowl, okay? Bible Bowl, just think Super Bowl minus the super plus the Bible, okay? That's kind of what it was. Now, I don't know this for a fact, I assume that the original purpose of Bible Bowl was to encourage kids to deeply study the Bible. I think what they probably intended at the beginning of this endeavor, and this was something that multiple Christian schools in multiple states were a part of at this time back in the 90s, uh, was that they would probably have some kind of like an intramural competition where kids would be on teams or would do it individually, something like that, and they would try to learn the questions and the answers and be able to answer them and then at the end, the school would put together their best team, and then they would send them to the annual uh, conference the thing we did. We had this uh, thing annually. All these Christian schools from all these states came together, and there was competition in like music and art and drama and speech and, and Bible Bowl and 
chess and checkers. I've played a few of those myself. But anyway, uh, they'd all get together and they'd have a big old competition so that we could eventually crown the Bible Bowl champions. Like that school would win. I think that was its original purpose. Uh, By the time that Jonathan and I were on Bible Bowl, things had changed a little bit, at least at our school. The guy who was in charge, the faculty guy or staff guy, whoever he was that was in charge of it, I think he had decided that the whole like intramural process of figuring out who was the best was a waste of time, and he just handpicked the four people that he thought would be the best at this game of of Bible Bowl, myself, Jonathan, and two other guys, and he picked us, uh, not saying in a bragging way, because we generally were the the best in our classes, uh, had the highest grades, good memories, that kind of thing. So, So what he did was, somehow, he excused us or got us excused from Bible class for that entire year because it's a Christian school. So I think three days a week we had a Bible class, Monday, Wednesday, Friday. He got us out of Bible class. He got us a room all to ourselves where no one was around, no supervision at all. And he says, go up there and study the questions, study Bible Bowl, and you'll do great by the time we get to the three-day competition at the end of the year. Now, to be fair, when you put four high school-age boys in a room by themselves with no adult supervision... Generally, we're not going to do what we were asked to do. Uh, We spent the vast majority of that year playing Rook and Spades. Uh, I became a much better card player at the end of that year, uh, by the end of that year. But but that was okay. I mean, it wasn't okay. It was terribly wrong. Any children listening to that was terribly wrong. We should have done what we were told to do. but, But it was okay because we didn't actually need an entire year to prepare. I mean, as I said a minute ago, they had purposely picked people who were good academically, good memories, organized thinkers, that kind of thing. And so we were capable of doing what we needed to do without the full year's preparation. And as we began to to think about how to approach the game, we made uh, some decisions along the way. So so how it worked, I'm trying to explain it uh, just so you get it. There was a study guide that was given to us. It was like 1,200 questions. It was a huge guide. It had every question with big questions with big answers. It's all spelled out. And so we thought, well, we can do a few things. First, we will perfectly memorize every question in the book. Now, 1,200 questions is a lot, so nobody could possibly do that all on their own. So we came up with what I still to this day think was an ingenious idea. We divided all of the questions by first words. So all of the witches were in one pile and the whats were in another and the whos and the wheres and the whens and the whys and the hows, etc. Had them all divided out and then we sort of divided them up between the four of us so that we each had about 300 or so questions to go through. And in this way, whenever you heard a question begin with your word, you knew it was you. You didn't have to think about it. If it wasn't, you could instantly tune out and not worry about it. You only had a very small slice of questions to answer. Secondly, then, along with that, we made the decision to be able to answer our questions at the first distinguishable syllable in each question. So let's say there are two questions that started with which king of Israel, and the next word was went on one question, and the next one was built on the other. We wanted to be able to answer it at wuh or buh. This is a buzz-in kind of game, right? You've got to be able to buzz in as quick as possible. So if you have a jump on the buzzer, then you're going to do better in the match. And so we all, four of us, learned all of our questions to the first distinguishable syllable. The third decision we made was to familiarize ourselves thoroughly with the Bible Bowl rule book. Because there's rules to any game, right? And just like football, or you can use those rules to your advantage if you know them well. So for example, there were rules like once you buzzed in, how many seconds did you have to begin answering a question? 
Once you started to answer it, how many seconds did you have to finish answering the question? And so if you had like five seconds to start answering and another 15 to finish, that meant you could burn 20 seconds off the clock in the match. And if you wanted to control the clock, that might come in handy later, okay? So, so we did all this. And so finally, finally the competition comes, all right? We're, we're here. As it was in Charlotte, if I remember correctly, that year. It was a big church that like, offered their facilities, and all these Christian schools are showing up from all over. I think it was Virginia, North Carolina, South Carolina, maybe Georgia as well. I'm not sure. But we're all showing up there. We knew some of the schools. Others, that we didn't, uh, others were there that we didn't really know, but one school was there that we knew very well. It was our arch rivals, Raleigh Christian Academy. They were horrible, horrible people at Raleigh. Hated them. We competed against them in anything you could compete against. Giving blood, it didn't matter. We were like, we hated, hated Raleigh. And when they did the drawing for the Bible, Bible Bowl brackets for the competition, we ended up on one side of the bracket and they ended up on the other. So the only way we would meet is if we both made it to the final round, all right? So competition day begins. First round, you know how this is. If you've ever been to an event like this, they stick people in like whatever random rooms they can find, like you're in a closet, you're in a bathroom, you know, you just do your thing, if we got to get in there, and you, you have these opening rounds, and nobody came to the opening rounds of Bible Bowl, right? I mean, who would come to the opening rounds of Bible Bowl? There's no parents there, there's no really other students or friends there. The only people who are sitting in the, the seats watching when these opening rounds of Bible Bowl are other Bible Bowl teams that are there trying to size up the competition, right? So we're sitting there, we're watching teams compete, we're like, we can take them. We can take them. Our time comes, and we get up there, and we're like, we need to make a statement. <laughs> we need to put people on notice. You can tell the swagger I still have with this. You c- we're going to put people on notice that we're here. And so we get up there, and we destroy. Destroy the first team. Not even close. Just, I mean, we're so fast on the buzzers. We have the answers perfect. I mean, we are, we're killing them. And everybody in there is like, you know, whispering around. Play a few more rounds early on, killing people, killing people, killing people. Finally, we work our way up the brackets. And who is it? We make it to the championship round. Who is it that we're going to play in the championship round? Those evil, evil people at Raleigh Christian Academy. Yes, they were, they were horrible. So here we are now. And when in Bible Bowl, the way they did it, this competition was the final match was mandatory for everyone involved in the competition. So we're in the auditorium of this church. There's like 1,500 or 2,000 people in front of us. And our team, four people are here. Their four people are there. The judges, the scoreboard, all that stuff, the buzzers, timer, you know, all that's there in the middle. And so we're like, if there's ever a moment to make a statement, it's now against Raleigh. And so the game begins. And it was divided up like this. There was like a 10 or 12-minute period of questions, and then like a five, it's kind of like hockey, then like a five-minute break, another 10 to 12 minutes, another five-minute break, and another 10 to 12 minutes. So we go through the first segment, we're killing them, break. Go through the second segment, we're killing them, break. We get to the third segment, and we're right at the break, and we're like, what are we going to do? Because it's Raleigh. I mean, you don't want to just beat your rival. You want to rub their noses in it if you can. Right? You know I'm right. So... (laughs) So we make a decision. Again, we had, we had studied the rules. We knew everything. We didn't need the clock, but they were trying desperately to come back. And, and so we decided just out of pure spite to run the clock very visibly. And so the first question is asked. We buzz in. 
the king of Israel who built the temple was Solomon. <laughs> Just like that. <laughs> Hand up in everything. Watch exposed to the crowd and everything. The first time, no one reacted. The second time, no one reacted. By about the third or fourth time, you can hear a murmur developing in the crowd. As all of the people connected to our Christian school are like, yes, oh, they're sticking it to Raleigh, oh, they're loving it. And the Raleigh people are over there, and they're starting to get angry, and you can see them getting antsy. And, and I'm looking across at the table, the other kids, high school kids are over there, and they're getting upset with it too, but, you know, we didn't care. We didn't want to just win. We wanted to make a statement, and of course we did, to the point that our coach, he wasn't really our coach, the guy who was over us came up to us later and said, that probably wasn't the best thing to do, but good job on winning. <laughs> I mean, it was Raleigh. Again, you, you win at whatever cost. Now, why am I telling you that story other than it totally bolsters my cool factor with you all, like to the nth degree? I will tell you, I could tell you later about some of my singing experiences in that same competition. Yes, I did sing. I was tenor, uh, but I'll leave those for another day because uh, they're worse. So uh, why am I telling you this story? Well, it's because as I was trying to think of a way to introduce this uh, new and last section of Mark's gospel to you, that was a story that, believe it or not, in my mind, was the best at kind of giving us a sense of what's going on here in these first 11 verses of Mark. Uh, not the petty rivalry component, the making a statement component. Uh, let, let's just begin by reminding ourselves of where we've been up to this point. After opening with his prologue, Mark has attempted to present Jesus to us in three specific ways. First, as the Son of God. Second, as the King of all. And finally here, as being the Christ, the Messiah, the, the one promised by God in the Old Testament to come and make everything right. And as you can see, this third presentation of Jesus by Mark is, is by far, it's the largest. It's almost two-thirds of his gospel just on that one point. And it seems to be broken into these three smaller subsections, as I've called them, that are progressively bringing us closer and closer to the cross. So we just finished, finished subsection two last Sunday, this one that I refer to here on the screen as being on the road. Throughout that last subsection, uh, we see Jesus and the disciples literally getting closer and closer and closer to Jerusalem. And on the way, we've learned a lot about this kingdom that Jesus is bringing, what it's going to look like, and what those who plan to live in it, or how those who plan to live in it should live. And without rehashing all of that, I think it will suffice to say that this kingdom that Jesus is bringing doesn't in any way look like the kingdoms of this world. I mean, clearly the the disciples want it to look like a kingdom of this world, and, and, and so that's why uh, they've asked the questions they've asked. That's why they've responded in the way they've responded. They've expected that kind of kingdom all along, and to be fair, they're not alone because all the people around them also expected that kind of kingdom, that the, that the Messiah would just march in and he would overthrow the Romans and he would restore Israel's greatness and fortunes and bring righteousness and justice back to the earth and that he would make Israel rule. He would rule over Israel and he would make Israel rule over all the nations as well. Uh, but clearly that wasn't the kind of kingdom that Jesus had in mind. And so he's tried 
time and time again to make that clear, has he not? I mean, over and over and over with the disciples and with the people, and he's done this both directly uh, through his teaching, right, and through his interaction with, with others. I mean, think about all the times up to this point he's had to correct them, like specifically, personally, no, it's not going to be like this, it's going to be like this. Or also think about all the times that people have started to kind of pick up on, maybe this guy's special, maybe he's the Messiah, and when Jesus sees that, he's like, whoa, shut up, hush, don't tell anyone. Go out of here, don't say a word to anyone. He does that both to people and to, to demons. And so directly, uh, he's trying to, to, to stop or suppress their expectations. I think he's also kind of been doing it indirectly, if you think of it in this way. I mean, just think about some of the, the way that he has lived his life up to this point. Think about where he spent the majority of his time. It's not been down in Judea and the religious political capital of the, of the area. He spent the vast majority of his time in Galilee a backwater, hick kind of area, or there, or the, the other side of the Jordan, the east side of the Jordan, where there's a lot of Gentiles. He spent a lot of time up in those areas, very, very little time in Judea. Uh, think about the kinds of places that, that he's uh, gone. He hasn't spent a lot of time in cities. I mean, sure, he enters a village every now and then, and Capernaum, of all the cities, is the one he spends the most time in, but by and large, the majority, majority of Jesus' life is spent in the wilderness, on the road from here to there, he just, he's itinerant. He doesn't, he doesn't hunker down in these, these hubs of society. And think about the people he's even interacted with. He hasn't spent a lot of time with the wealthy or the important. He has spent the vast, vast majority of his time with the working class people. The fishermen, the farmers, the shepherds, etc. I mean, not the people you would think you would be interacting with if you're trying to establish a kingdom, one that looks like the kingdoms of this world. So, so no matter how you look at it, it is clear, and it really has been since the beginning of Mark, that Jesus and his kingdom are not anything like the rulers and kingdoms of this world. All of the expectations that the people had about the Messiah and about his kingdom were wrong. To, to a point, they are wrong, and Jesus has gone out of his way to avoid the spotlight and avoid uh, any of that attention and to correct all of their wrong presuppositions since day one. That is, until now. Because as you can see behind me here, this third and final subsection sub of this third and final presentation of Jesus is totally focused on the last week of Jesus' life. And I want you just to think about that for a moment, because Jesus is approximately 33 years old at this point. He's been in public ministry for approximately three years. And here, Mark, who doesn't write a lot, I mean, he's got the shortest of all the Gospels, he devotes one full third of his book to just these last few days of Jesus' life. I mean, none of the other, he doesn't give that much attention to the other 32 and a, you know, 0.9 years. He doesn't give that much attention really to the other two point whatever years of ministry. This final week is so significant to Mark that he devotes a third of his book just to these few days. Clearly, these days are important. Clearly, they mark a turning point that is unlike anything that we've seen to date. We are approaching the end. And everything that Jesus has taught, everything that he's 
preached and predicted and proclaimed that would happen to him. And most obviously, his entire reason for even coming to the earth in human form in the first place is all about to culminate in just a few days here on on Friday afternoon. And so I cannot overemphasize to you the importance and the significance of this section that we are about to cover over these next however many weeks it happens to take us to go through it. Okay, This is going to be like anything unlike anything we've seen before. Now, typically when we enter a new section, I like to take the first message to sort of do an overview, set the course. I've done this lots and lots. If you're a Cornerstone veteran, you've seen me do this many, many times. I think it's typically helpful just to to help us just get a sense of what it is we should be looking for as we work through the text. And I had every intention of doing that kind of sermon today. However, when I started studying the text, I realized that I could not do a better job of introducing the section as a whole than by simply walking us through these first 11 verses of Mark chapter 11. I mean, I'm still going to give you a little bit of overview near the end, but, but I think you'll be best prepared for this journey by noticing what has changed as soon as we entered chapter 11, because it is so drastic and so out there that you can't help but notice it, and it's going to continue like this all the way until the end. So let's just begin by getting ourselves situated with where Jesus is and where he's headed. In verse 1 here, you see that Mark tells us that they're near Jerusalem. Specifically, they're near these two little villages, small villages named Bethany and Bethphage, or Bethpage, depending on how you want to pronounce that. And as I reminded you a moment ago, this is really unusual, particularly in Mark's gospel, because Jesus has spent the vast majority of his time up in the northern part of Palestine, northern part of Israel, there around the Sea of Galilee. That's the region that is called Galilee. But But through this second subsection that we just finished, he was progressively moving closer and closer and closer to Jerusalem. In fact, the text that Chris took us through last Sunday where Jesus is interacting with Bartimaeus, blind Bartimaeus, that occurs there in Jericho. You see it just to the northeast of Jerusalem. That's occurring there as they're on the way south. And now he's right outside the gate near these little villages of Bethany and and Bethphage. Here's a little better uh, view of that specific area As you can see, these two villages are are on a road that sort of takes you around the Mount Mount of Olives. You don't go over the mountain, you go around the mountain. Who wants to climb a mountain, just go back down the mountain for no reason. They go around the mountain, they go down through the Kidron Valley, and then they come up into the temple complex. This is is where they're at. And as they approach this area, Jesus sends two of his disciples into the village ahead with a very specific mission. He says to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever set. Untie it and bring it. And if anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and we'll send it back here immediately. Now, you just stop and put yourself in the disciples' shoes for a moment. I mean, imagine if, if Jesus had, had told you to do this. What would have been your reaction? You're like, you know, Jesus, you're asking me to go steal, I mean, borrow a, a colt and... and Specifically, a donkey that no one's ever ridden on. How am I going to know this? And, and when we're supposed to, if anyone asks, we're supposed to just like give them an assurance that this guy, the Lord, is going to return it when he's done. Really? <laughs> like, you want us to go do this? I mean, I would be embarrassed, I'll be honest, to go just take a random animal tied up somewhere in a random village from people I don't know at all. But okay, it's very strange. It's a very specific request. But I want you to notice that it's not really as much of a request as it is a command and a prediction. 
He tells them which village it will be in. It will be in the one in front of you right now. So wherever they're at, I don't know on the road, it's going to be in that village. He tells them where in the village it will be. It's immediately, as you enter it, you're going to see it. It's going to be tied up, the one that's tied up. So if there's 10 colts running around loose, it's not those. It's the one that's tied up. And even though this won't be obvious to you or I, Jesus knows something about this particular colt that no one has ever sat on it before. And he says, when someone asks you why you're taking it, just let them, tell them this and they'll be totally okay with it. All right, sure enough, they go into the village and everything down to the smallest detail is just as Jesus has said. They went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus has said, and they're like, okay. And they let them go. That, that's amazing, right? Like you get the, and we read it so fast, but it, this is no small episode that's occurring here. This is, this is unbelievable, but but it's not the unbelievable nature of the scenario that makes it stand out. I'll show you what makes it stand out here in just a moment. Verse 7, they bring the colt to Jesus and they throw their cloaks on it and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. You know what the word Hosanna means? It means save us. But it's not like if you're like about to fall into a volcano shouting save us, like save us. It's, not that. it's like, it's like the, the, the prisoners of the Nazi concentration camp seeing the, the tanks coming in. They're, they're filled with hope and joy. The end has come. They're saved. Save us. It's that kind of an exultant, praise-like request to God. Okay? It's not a, a plea because we think we're about to die kind of kind of word. It's a, it's a praise word. Hosanna, salvation, save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They're equating Jesus as being one of the prophets, as one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. What is that a reference to? Him being a Messiah? The, the return of David's kingdom, the, the descendant that God had promised to David finally showing up, Hosanna in the highest. This is, folks, this is some procession that is going into the temple complex as they're making their way up the hill from the valley there. And again, I'll draw your attention to why this stands out in a moment. But finally, verse 11, he enters Jerusalem and he went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the 12. Wait. Huh? So he, big procession, people shouting and cheering on the way. He gets in and he gets off the donkey and he goes in. And he's like, all right, let's go. I mean, that's what he says. I mean, it's kind of late now. We should probably get home. Uh, what, that was weird, Right? He goes back to Bethany, where apparently he's going to stay throughout the week, and the first day ends. Can, can I just ask you a, a question here? What in the world is going on? I mean, on the one hand, this is a scene that many Christians know very well, because for some strange reason in my mind, the church has built this tradition around treating this particular event in a special way. Ever heard of Palm Sunday, right? 
Palm Sunday, the, the day where we're all supposed to get palm branches from, like, who sells palm branches? But you're supposed to go find a palm branch so you can walk into a building with it? Like, there's a bunch of palm trees up at the ocean front. We could go attack them and take all the branches down and then worship? What? Like, not, I don't understand the concept of why we emphasize Palm Sunday. I don't really get it. To me, it doesn't make sense. I'm sorry. But in fact, having studied this passage now for myself, I can't help but think that that tradition masks the real significance of what is going on here. And it's not exactly what you might be expecting. Let me ask you three questions. I'm just going to give them to you. One, two, three. Answer them in your mind. We'll see how answering these questions helps stimulate your thinking about the event going on here. Number one, would you say that Jesus has, up to this point, attempted to draw a lot of attention to himself, or has he tried to avoid it? Okay, got your answer? Question two, can you think of another instance in any gospel where Jesus rides anywhere? I mean, apart from like the boats as they're crossing the, the water, but I mean, just in terms of his moving around, can you think of another instance where this happens? Number three, when Jesus interacts with people who want to promote and proclaim his messiahship, does he generally encourage that or discourage that? Okay, got your answer? You understand the questions? Got your answers in mind? Uh, well, the answers to these questions, I think, should be obvious. If you've been with us through, Mark, uh, through Mark's gospel up to this point, you should know them. If you haven't, I'll just make sure that they are clear. In the past, as I mentioned earlier, Jesus has gone out of his way to avoid attention. I mean, he has gone out of his way. He's walked away from crowds when they were trying to swarm around him. He's gotten in the boat to escape. He does, really, up to this point, he's done whatever he had to do to to not be in those kinds of positions. Not only that, but as best I can remember, find he's walked everywhere. You think, so? I mean, finally he got a ride. That's great, right? <laughs> like, no, no, no. You just, he's walked everywhere he's been up to this point, again, unless they're crossing the lake. And when people or demons have tried to uh, proclaim him as being the Son of God, as being the Christ, as trying to in any way draw attention to his Messiahship, or even mentioned it, not even just drawing attention to it. Sometimes it's the even say the words. He instantly tells them to be quiet. Don't say this. Don't go out and say this kind of stuff. Don't tell anyone what I've done. Don't tell anyone who you think I am. And he's done this over and over and over again. And yet here, he does the exact opposite of everything that he's done before. Every last detail. Everything about his entrance into Jerusalem is designed to draw attention. Do you, do you hear what I'm saying there? It's designed to draw attention. I mean, there's no other way to see it in my mind. He's not just entering, because he could have just walked into the city. Anyone can walk in. The city gates are open. People are coming and going all the time. He's not choosing to just come in like everyone else. He is making a statement. His choice to ride into the city, very specifically on this cult, is also no random choice. This is something a king would do. More on that in a moment. And the fact that he doesn't rebuke the crowds for, for their shouts is really, to me, the most amazing of all because they're, they're going above and beyond almost anything that we've seen done in the gospel up to this point. I mean, people have done far less than this, and he's instantly like, be quiet. But now they're shouting and running through the streets, Hosanna, 
Blessed is the coming of, of David's heir. Blessed is the, the one who comes in the name of Hosea. I mean, they're like, they're, they're excited. They're shouting going into the temple complex of all places. <laughs> if there's any part of the city to be entering, shouting these kinds of things where it would draw a lot of attention, it's there. And he doesn't silence them at all. In, in effect, even I would say by not silencing them, he's actually encouraging it. By letting them do it. He's encouraging these words. This isn't a simple entrance into the city, folks. Jesus is making a statement. One that cannot be ignored. One that cannot even be forgotten. Now, the statement that Jesus is making is somewhat apparent to us. I mean, we kind of get it. We kind of pick up on what he's doing here. But it would have been even more apparent to anyone who was there watching it. I mean, like times 10, especially given all of their hopes and expectations for the coming of the Messiah and all that they had been taught about the Messiah from, from their Old Testament uh, teachers, their classes, their parents, their culture even, would have taught them about the Messiah. For example, I would be shocked to find a single person there standing on the street watching that scene unfold that didn't immediately, immediately make a connection between what they were seeing and the prophecy of Zechariah in chapter 9 when he says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation as he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Is, is this not exactly what's happening in front of them as they, they watch this? I mean, even think of their choice of shouting out Hosanna about salvation having arrived. This concept, it even ties in here. Jesus is making a statement to the city, to the people, to the nation, to the religious leaders that he is this Messiah, this king, that he has come to his city and to his people to bring righteousness and salvation to all. Even that little detail about him going into the temple and looking around, it's a part, I think, of this statement because it sounds very regal. I mean, some of you are on a ship. Imagine if the president was going to come visit your ship or your base or your workplace or whatever. What would happen if the president was coming? Well, there'd be pomp and circumstance, would there not? There'd be everybody clean everything up, get everything ready. We're going to, oh, the, the president's coming and all the dignitaries would be there to present themselves and they'd bring him in the ship or whatever and they would... Show him around. And what's he going to do that whole time? Hmm. 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 He just observes, right? He's seeing what's his in this sense. Because he's the president. He's the commander-in-chief. This, this is all under his control. It's very, very regal, very authoritative kind of feel to it. Jesus does in and does the same kind of thing. He walks into the temple. I'm the king. This is my temple. He makes his observation, and that's all he needs to do for today. He can get back, I don't know if he gets back on the cold or not, but he heads back out to Bethany. This entire opening scene is about Jesus making a statement that he is indeed the promised Messiah, that he is the Christ, and that his time has come. There's no more being quiet now. There, there's, there's no more avoiding attention. Jesus is throwing down the gauntlet here. He's firing the opening shot. 
He, he is, he's, he's saying to them, it's game on. I can't think of any other analogies to use, right? I mean, he's just making the statement and everything is about to change for him and for the situation. I mean, as you look ahead now over the next couple of days of his life that are about to unfold, you're going to see the confrontations, particularly with the religious leaders, increase dramatically. Tomorrow, what's he going to do? He's going to get done. He's going to come back into the city. What's the first thing he's going to do? He's going to cleanse the temple. Who? <laughs> Who has the audacity to walk into the temple complex and have so much authority over it that he now feels the right to undo things that have been done for years and years and years? Jesus, it's his. The next day, what's he going to do? He's going to sit there or stand there in the temple complex. Everything's happening around the temple for these first few days. You'll notice that as a theme. It just keeps occurring. They're going back to that scene. It's his place, right? He's the Messiah. He's there at the temple. And he's going to have dispute after dispute after dispute with all kinds of people who want to dispute with him. And the crazy thing is where in the past is Jesus has been attacked, you know, he generally responds very wisely and kind of meekly at points. You're going to notice a difference in Jesus now because now he goes on the offensive like hard against them. He shuts them up in ways that were offensive to them. It bothered he he is humiliating the religious leaders in their own on their own home turf in ways he has not done before. Those first three days are all sort of based in and around the temple area until chapter 13, which is kind of like a, it's like halftime because it's really intense, but it's like a break in the story in a way as Jesus begins to explain, yeah, you see this temple? It won't be here forever. And he begins to explain the end of days and and what's going to come with that. And finally, chapter 14 gets here and the religious leaders have had it. I mean, they are done. They, they didn't like him before. They wanted to destroy him all the way back, like in Mark 3, I think it was. They made that decision, or 2. But now they are very specifically plotting to kill him. No, no bones about it. We're not going to be subtle. We just want him dead. We want to do it. We want him. We want to kill him. And all of 14 is given over to, to how they're going to do this, and finally about his arrest and all the trials, and then finally in 15 it, it all comes to a head, and Jesus is crucified dies, and is buried. And the thing that's interesting to me, and I'm still working on this idea, so don't, don't put too much stock in it right at this moment. It's just kind of some of my questions I have as we're going to work through the text. I'm going to study it more. Is that there seems to be some similarities between how things begin with this week and the beginning of chapter 11 and how they end in, in chapter 15. I mean, think about the beginning of 11. He enters to the shouts of the crowd, right? Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he. At the end of the week, he's killed to the shouts of the crowd. Crucify him, crucify him, his blood be on us and on our children, you know, and they're out around the, the cross taunting him. Uh, at the beginning of 11, he's carried into the city by a donkey, his kingly presentation, I would say. By the end of the week, he's carried out of the city by his pallbearers, the king dead, taken to the tomb. Beginning of the week, he seems to confirm all of their expectations about the Messiah. The people are immediately enamored with him. They've heard about him. Now he's here. He's entering the city. By the end of the week, he will be a disappointment to many. Just another name and a long list of names of those who claim to be the one who would bring righteousness and salvation, as Zechariah prophesied, but who died in shame. That is, until chapter 16. I refer to as kind of Mark's conclusion when Jesus makes his final and most important statement of all, right? And if this is a statement in 11, it's nothing compared to the statement in 16. 
He makes his most important statement of all when he rises from the dead. It didn't happen the way they thought it would, nor did his kingdom look like anything they had imagined, not even in their wildest dreams. But the king had, in fact, conquered all enemies. And and having won a decisive victory, he ascends to his father's right hand to rule over his kingdom until he comes again. And as we begin this new section, my only request of you is that you pray, and I mean this with all sincerity, that you pray that God will help you to set aside your thoughts that you've had about this from your past, to try to see this with fresh eyes as being about the final triumph of the king. Okay, you hear those words? It's about the final triumph of the king so that we can say in truth what the crowds themselves say, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, Hosanna in the highest. Will you bow your heads with me? Jesus, it is so easy for us because we are so familiar with some of these events that are coming up in the next few weeks here to almost tune out at the most important part of this story. But you have made it so clear, even with just how you walk into the city, ride into the city, that you are here to make a statement that is unlike anything you've done up to this point. You are bringing this thing to a head. You are bringing it to its final conclusion. And to everyone there in Jerusalem that day, that week, it looked like you had just fallen apart, fallen off the radar, died like so many who had come before, and yet, thankfully, we know the ending of the story that that was not the case, that what seemed like defeat to everyone in the, in the city was actually your means of securing final victory, that you, the king, would be victorious over all. And so these people who are on this first day shouting your praises will later call for your crucifixion They don't understand, but we do. And so I pray, Lord, that our hearts will be so open to seeing these stories with fresh eyes that we will just walk away from how this week unfolds, shouting the very same words that they sang, Hosanna, our our word of thankful praise, salvation has come. You are it. You are the the one from the Lord. You are the, the king You're fulfilling God's promises. Hosanna in the highest. May our hearts just abound with praise through this time. And so we ask your blessing on the series ahead as we finish out Mark's gospel. Help us to do what we've been trying to do all along, just to see you, Jesus, to hear you, to walk down these dusty roads, to sit where you sit, to listen to your words, and now to watch you willingly purposefully, knowingly walk to the cross to take our sins on us, to ascend to your Father's side until you come again. Thank you for your word in Jesus' name. Amen.